welcome back to the Insightful Thinkers Podcast. Napoleon once said that China is a sleeping giant. Let her lie and sleep, for when she awakens, she will astonish the world. A couple hundred years later, in 2021, this giant is finally awake, and it has been for some time. China's rise from a poor developing country to a major economic power in about four decades has truly been remarkable. From 1979, when their economic reforms began to today, China's GDP grew at an average annual rate of nearly 10%. So GDP is the total value of all the goods and services that are produced by a country in any given time period. So year over year, China is increasingly producing these goods and services at an extremely rapid rate. According to the World Bank, China has experienced the fastest sustained expansion by a major economy in history and has lifted more than 800 million people out of poverty. How did this all come to be? Um, well, we're going to figure this out today. We're talking about the rise of China, the primary sources that provided the information that will be really discussed in this episode were Morrison's 2019 paper, China's Economic Rise, History, Trends, Challenges, and Implications for the United States, and Hu and Khan 1997, Why is China Growing So Fast? International Monetary Fund. So you see from, from that paper, 1997, China's been growing very rapidly for a long time, and it really started around 1979. But what was happening before 1979 that was causing China to be so downtrodden? Well, China was really a disaster under Mao's leadership, contrary to a lot of the propaganda that existed during that time and still exists to this day and has been ingrained in a lot of the Chinese. It, it truly was a disaster because prior to 1979, Mao was running a centrally planned economy. So we talked about some of this centrally planned economy stuff in the episode cases for and against socialism uh, a centrally planned economy is when a large share of the country's economic output is directed by the state and the state sets production goals it controls prices and it allocates resources throughout the economy this contrasts with a market economy that we know well in the west um, and, and increasingly throughout the world. And we'll see how China started adopting this market economy to turn things around. But the market economy is where the economic output is determined based on the market for different goods and services. So the government doesn't decide for the most part what is produced. It's what is produced is dependent on the market. If someone opens a business that isn't generating any income, that business will eventually shut down. If they're doing a business that creates products that people actually want, that business continues because there's a market for it. That's a market economy. Centrally planned economy doesn't care about these things. It just produces things based on the planning that it does uh, without real knowledge of if it's going to be profitable or not. And this is really where China was going wrong before this. So before 1979, all of China's farms were collectivized into large communes, so there were no privately owned farms. At this time, nearly three quarters of all industrial production was produced by centrally controlled state-owned enterprises, or SOEs, all according to centrally planned output targets. So private enterprises were mostly barred, and foreign trade was limited to 
obtaining only goods that could not be made or obtained in China. So they had these, uh, these ideas not to really trade. And then it was very closed off their economy, totally centrally planned by the government. It was a Soviet style uh, economy is what they were following. These types of policies created severe distortions in the economy. Since most aspects of the economy were managed and run by the central government, there were no market mechanisms to efficiently allocate resources. Since this created a focus only on production goals uh, set by the government, there were very few incentives for firms and workers to become more productive or to be concerned with the quality of what they produced. They weren't operating in their own businesses where the the CEO wants his, his or her workers to be productive and uh, can fire certain employees and hire different ones. It's all... The government has control over all of it anyway. So what is the incentive to produce a large amount and produce quality things? There was no incentives for that. The, the general issues with the central planning of the economy, again, come from our episode when we, uh, cases for and against socialism. I don't know the number off the top of my head. It was an earlier one, but... We talked about how in the cases against socialism, critics have something called the economic calculation problem, which is the impossibility of a socialist government to make the economic calculations required to organize a complex economy. Critics argue that socialist systems like what Mao was running that are based on economic planning are unfeasible because they lack the information to perform economic calculations in the first place due to a lack of price signals and a free price system. And critics argue that these things are required for rational economic calculation in the first place. This is maybe maybe a lot in, in kind of one go, but basically, to kind of to put it a little more simply, the critics are basically saying that if you don't have a, due, due to a lack of a market in these socialist systems, these socialist systems are sabotaging themselves because they don't, they're removing the very thing that allows them to plan the economy in the first place. You need a market to be able to create these calculations, these economic calculations. And if you don't have a free market, that brings you to the economic calculation problem. How can you even calculate what what goods and services are going to be needed and, and what should be produced. This is, there's a serious problem there if you don't have a free market. So because China didn't have any semblance of a free market before 79, China's economy, unsurprisingly, suffered significant economic downturns during this time. Mao's so-called Great Leap Forward from 1958 to 1962 Led, a, led to a massive famine and to the death of around 50 million people. This is more uh, people killed than under the regimes of Hitler and Stalin combined. It's the largest single non-wartime campaign of mass killing in human history. So if there was famine, there was forced labor, there was torture if you didn't want to, didn't want to work. And uh, millions and millions were killed by these disastrous policies. What, what, what went wrong in this great leap forward? And what caused the deaths of all these people? Still, we're kind of going over. This is not the rise of China. This is how China was destroying itself before 1979. So the great leap forward, it was 
a five-year plan instituted by Mao's Communist Party that was meant to reconstruct the economy through the formation of people's communes. So overall, the plan was centered around two primary goals. They wanted to collectivize agriculture and they wanted to spread industrialization far and wide. The main, uh, what they wanted to produce out of this were grain and steel. So where did they go wrong with these trying to produce grain and steel? Well, a nationwide campaign to exterminate sparrows was put in place by Mao because Mao believed that they were a major pest on grain crops. So he said, let's just eliminate all the sparrows. But this resulted in massive locust swarms in the absence of the natural predation that occurs by the sparrows. Sparrows eat these locusts. If there are no sparrows, the locusts get out of control when you mess with uh, the ecosystem, this is what this is what happens. Mao had no knowledge of this, and he just eliminated all the sparrows. So this caused grain production to fall sharply because the locusts actually were, were killing this grain. And this led to the deaths uh, by starvation uh, to, to millions. People resorted actually to eating dirt, dirt and tree bark. It was horrible, the famine that was happening. It did go along with some natural disasters that happened as well, but some of these natural disasters were exacerbated by all sorts of other things that Mao's uh, party did. They, they had these poor irrigation systems. They just had, they had, they had horrible plans in, in these years. There was also the issue with when, so there goes their grain idea. That, that was one of their main goals of this five-year plan. What about the steel idea? Well, to, to create more steel, this government was taking, was uprooting trees and literally taking doors off the houses of, of peasants and taking their furniture, their wooden furniture, to be used for fuel into these steel furnaces. They were also just melting down all the metal equipment they had that was used that were used as tools initially on on the farms. They were just melting all of that down to fuel additional production because with this centrally planned economy, they thought, "How are we gonna? We want to produce steel. How are we gonna do this?" So they just go in with this preconception and this idea that we want to go in and produce this. It's not a market economy. It's a centrally planned economy. They just determine beforehand what they want to produce. So they choose to produce grain, that fails. They choose to produce steel. Well, the issue is that after, with all these practices they used, only very low quality pig iron or crude iron was produced. And this was worth little to no economic value. So they ended up empty handed after totally disrupting the economy. They were planning to create these these two things and it created no economic value and this is where you see the famine start to happen the eminent economist milton friedman says he said this about kind of these centrally planned economies he said if an entrepreneur's project doesn't work he just closes it down but if it had been for a government project it would have been expanded because there is not the discipline of the profit and loss element in a free market if your losses are exceeding your profits, you're going to end up shutting down. That, that's just the element that drives the economy. In these centrally planned economies, and, and Mao actually, he just continued this steel program. He decided not to order a halt to the backyard steel furnace program. 
it was called like the backyard steel furnaces because there were just steel furnaces all over the place in these communes and quite literally in backyards. So he didn't want to shut down this program, even though it was producing worthless iron, not even not high quality steel, because he didn't want to dampen this uh, enthusiasm that was there uh, of the masses. The masses kind of, due to propaganda, they thought, oh, everything's going well, we're producing great things, and everything's going great under Mao. So he didn't even shut down these programs. He only quietly abandoned the program much later in that year. And Friedman, he talks about this, that if it's the government, they don't want to look bad and because they planned it all out. So they can just continue a program that's not working at all. And that leads to things getting progressively worse. And this is how the famine gets exacerbated. So more generally, what really went wrong with this five-year plan was there was a lot of inefficiency of the communes and there was a large-scale diversion of farm labor into small-scale industry. And this seriously disrupted China's agriculture. And three consecutive years, as I mentioned, of natural disasters added to what quickly turned into complete calamity across the country. And this led to the deaths of, of all those millions of people. From 58 to 62, China's living standards fell by 20%. And from 1966 to 1968, they dropped by 10%. The growth in Chinese living standards and per capita GDP or per person GDP paled in comparison to Western countries and also neighboring ones such as Japan. For the podcast listeners, I'll try to describe the figure that's going to come up onto the screen for the YouTube viewers, but it's it's basically just showing China versus Japan in their per capita GDP from 1950 to 1978. China's per, per capita GDP was just completely flat. There was no growth in the economy for about 30 years there, 28 years, just completely flat, whereas Japan's is rising at a rapid rate, their per capita GDP. So... There was just no growth during this time, and there was <laughs> the rise of China hadn't begun. Now let's talk about when it does begin. Begin. So 1978, <laughs> not so coincidentally, right after Mao's death, the Chinese government finally decides to break with its Soviet-style economic policies by gradually reforming the economy according to more free market principles and opening up trade and investment with the West. So their hope, of course, was that this would significantly increase economic growth and raise living standards. So what are these reforms that started to happen? This is the start of the rise of China, you guys. 1978 is when it all started. Uh, so what were these reforms that they started to institute in 78? So central government initiated incentives for farmers, which enabled them to sell a portion of their crops on the free market. This wasn't an option that existed before. The government established four special economic zones along the coast for the purpose of attracting foreign investment, boosting exports, and importing technological products into China. So this isn't like before under Mao when they were saying, oh, if you guys are creating something that we can create in China, we're not going to even trade with you. If it can be produced in China, no way. Now they were opening up these economic zones right along the coast and there was foreign investment happening. There were more exports, more imports and technological imports. And that also can change the country and, and change the world technology so that you can see how that stimulated some some growth and, and new companies started to burgeon. These coastal regions and cities were 
designated as open cities and development zones, which allowed them to experiment with free market reforms and to attract foreign investment. Additional reforms sought to decentralize economic policymaking in several sectors, especially trade. So economic control of various enterprises was taken away from this central government control, and it was now given to provincial and local governments, and they could operate and compete on free market principles rather than under the direction and guidance of state planning. Citizens were encouraged to start their own businesses. State price controls on a wide range of products were completely eliminated. No more set price by the state. This is now determined by the market. I think I mentioned this exact example in Cases for and Against Socialism where uh, you can't go and sell toothpaste for 20 bucks because there's there's just not a market for that. The market has the price lower because there's competition there. But in a centrally planned economy, they might just say this is the price of toothpaste or this is the price of this. But that doesn't work. So this started, these state price controls started to get eliminated. Trade barriers were removed and this encouraged greater competition. Many enterprises were freed from constant intervention by state authorities as well. State authorities, state authorities weren't cracking down on every single thing these, these enterprises were doing. And as a result, between 1978, when these reforms started, and 1992, the output of state-owned enterprises declined from 56% of national output to 40%, while the share of collective enterprises rose from 42 to 50%. Private businesses and joint ventures rose from 2 to 10% of national output as well. So this is like a total flip now. So the state-owned enterprises from 78 to 92, they went down from 50% to about 40%. And non-state-owned enterprises, these private enterprises, they rose from 40% to 50% of the national output. So everything's totally started to flip once they started adopting these free market principles. What were the results of these these adoption of these free market principles and more generally of China's total economic reform. Well, economists generally attribute much of China's rapid economic growth to two main factors, large scale capital investment. So this is inv capital investment is investment into fixed assets such as land, machinery or buildings. And, and the second thing economists attribute China's rapid economic growth to is rapid productivity growth. So rapid productivity growth and investment, they really go hand in hand because the reforms that increased uh, economic efficiency boosted productivity. So more productivity means more resources that can be invested back into the economy. So it's like a positive feedback loop that really led to China is leading to China's rise now. The improvements to productivity were caused largely by a reallocation of resources to more productive uses, especially in sectors that were formerly heavily controlled under tight constraints by the central government, like agriculture, trade, and services. Now, things uh, just become reallocated to more productive uses. For example, look at the agricultural reforms. They, they boosted production quite a bit because workers... Uh, now we're free to pursue employment in the more productive manufacturing sector. There wasn't any more forced labor. Look how unproductive it was to, they were making these people work 
all throughout the night. You can see pictures of people working under lamps all throughout the night on totally unproductive uh, st these steel communes, totally unproductive. We're farming in these unproductive communes. And, and now that this, these tight constraints were removed and they weren't forcing people to do these unproductive things, people could now pursue employment in more productive sectors like manufacturing. They had a choice for once. China's decentralization of the economy led to the rise of non-state enterprises such as private firms, which tended to pursue more productive activities than the centrally controlled state-owned enterprises and were more market-oriented and just a lot more efficient. Additionally, a greater share of the economy, mainly the export sector, was exposed to competitive forces for once. Local and provincial governments were allowed to establish and operate various enterprises without interference from the government. So economic liberalization is what is leading to China's rise here. The economic reforms also led to substantial growth in Chinese household savings as well as corporate savings. As a result, China's savings as a percentage of GDP are actually the highest among major economies. So this high level of savings has enabled China to support a high level of investment. That's kind of what we talked about, that relationship there. In fact, China's gross domestic savings far exceed its domestic investments, which have made China an, a large net global lender. They lend. How many times do you hear of the U.S. is in debt to China? You don't hear it going the other way around because China is a net global lender because of all these savings they've accumulated by these more efficient economic practices. Further, the post-1978 reforms granted greater autonomy to enterprise managers. People became free to set their own production goals, to sell some products in the private market at competitive prices, grant bonuses to good workers, to fire bad ones, and to retain some portion of the firm's earnings for future investment. So now that in a, in a centrally controlled, the socialist, excuse me, system, uh, these things that the farms are producing or, or these uh, steel communes are producing, it's, it's just going right to the state. They're, they're not taking home any of that stuff. But now when things start to come back into them, they can, they can take those earnings and then they can invest it into other things and then build in that way. And then they become more wealthy personally. And then, of course, they pay taxes. And this is how our system, not just in the West, but mostly around the world and China, you see, is adopting it now, too. This is how this, the system, this capitalism, this, this is how the system really works, the free market economy. Although it, you can argue that it's not really a free market, but these, these are kind of the... I, the principles, more or less, of the free market that China started to put in place that led to so much growth. The reforms also gave greater room for private ownership of production. So the, these private businesses now, rather than these non-private total business, you couldn't even call them businesses before because everything, all the work that was being put in by the people, the production was just going right to the state. But now there were private businesses and then this in turn created jobs. And this, these jobs and, and what these people were working on developed consumer products that turns out were actually in demand because there's a profit incentive. A business wants to produce things that 
are in demand. They're not, if, like I said before, if a business in the free market system is not producing something that's in demand, they're not going to go anywhere and they're going to fold. So there were incentives to produce things that were in demand and then people bought that and that stimulates the economy. And then there was more foreign trade. Uh, people also ended up paying taxes in this system. And this gave the national economy a flexibility and a resiliency that it just simply did not have before. China's open door policy has added power to the economic transformation by welcoming foreign investment too. So foreign investment, which remember was negligible before 1978, they're not investing in other people if China can produce it on their own, this closed mindedness, it left after 1978. So foreign investment, it reached nearly 100 billion US in 1994 compared to nearly zero in 1978. So annual inflows increased from less than 1% of the total investment in 1979 to 18% in 1994. This foreign money has built factories, created jobs linked to China's or link China, excuse me, to more international markets. They're part of the global economy now. And it has led to important transfers of technology. In addition, economic liberalization has boosted exports, which rose 19% a year during 1981 to 1994. So economic liberalization is the answer when... Uh, so now you know when, <laughs> when, when someone asks, how did China rise, what's... what's uh, or the factors that led up to the rise of China, it was economic liberalization. This is what it was. So less stringency in, in operations, including an increased willingness to trade. How many times have you played Monopoly? My brother, he was always, <laughs> at first when he was really young and he started playing, he never wanted to trade. He would get his properties when it came to trading time. He would just keep all his properties. He might not even get a set, but he just wanted to keep his stuff, stay conservative. It doesn't work. It's great. It, he might be saying like China did before 78. Oh, I'm just going to keep the things that I created myself and I bought myself and I produced myself. And that might work on the surface, but you have to open yourself up. You have to be able to take risks, open yourself up to the, to the economy and and don't end up losing the game like you will in Monopoly if you don't make any trades typically. So this is what China has started to do. Uh, they've created these more liberal economic policies and they've put power into the hands of the people. The West was built this way and China is no longer a sleeping giant as they begin to follow suit and hope to one day surpass the economic productivity in the West, particularly in the United States. You see that competition that's starting there. Uh, but will this ever happen? Will they ever surpass the United States? Maybe not. Some of the productions, or the predictions, excuse me, are a little bit grim. Uh, many long-term challenges do face the Chinese economic growth, but that will be for another episode, possibly. Maybe next week, uh, maybe another time we'll pick back up. But today was just the rise of China. And thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. We're growing our community through word of mouth. So if you like this episode, just share it with one or two people. That's how we've been growing so far. So let's keep going that way. Now you can also do the digital things, rate, review, like, comment, subscribe, follow. All these things do help with the discovery algorithms. Whatever you guys do to support, 
you have made it this far you've you've listened you've tuned into the insightful thinkers podcast and i can't thank you enough for that that's all that really matters um thank you so much for tuning in we'll be back next monday as always for more in-depth analysis into a diverse set of topics take care everyone This podcast is a production of Insightful Thinkers Media.